0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. There's something exciting about this Sunday, to me anyway. Its themes, uh, where it is on the church calendar, and the tone that it sets for us as we move into this new season. And we are in a new season, and I don't mean because yesterday was the first official day of summer, FYI, it was, but that now we are in Trinity Tide, um, or the time after Trinity. And this season of the church lasts all the way till Advent, which this year begins on November 29th. So let me recap for us briefly how we got here. It started last Advent, uh, when we were preparing for the birth of the Lord into the world. We celebrated Christmas, a uh, 12-day little mini-season of Christmas, and then we moved into the season of Epiphany, when Jesus was made known into the world, first the Magi, then in his revelatory baptism, and then in the first miracle, his first public miracle, the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine. And then several other stories throughout the Sundays of his healings and exorcisms and teachings where Christ is revealed into the world. That's what epiphany means. Then we uh, turn a corner and we started orienting ourselves to his death and resurrection, setting our eyes toward Jerusalem, as it were, and preparing our hearts uh, for that through the season of Lent. And then we get to the Passion and Death of Christ in Holy Week, and finally we celebrated the biggest feast day of the whole year, Pascha, Easter. And for 40 days, we, like the disciples 2,000 years ago, were contemplating the reality and the ramifications of Christ's resurrection, recalling his words from the Upper Room on Monday Thursday, considering the proofs he showed St. Thomas and others. And then, on the 40th day, accomplishing uh, a season of celebration every bit as long as the season of preparation which came before it, we watched as Christ ascended into heaven and commanded us to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we did. So we prayed for nine days, preparing and anticipating the Holy Spirit's coming. And we celebrated the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, But what else was fully revealed on the day of Pentecost as as well as the Holy Spirit? It was the full revelation of God in three persons as the Holy Trinity. We saw the Father through His Son when He walked on earth with us. As Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then we saw the Holy Spirit come upon us in flames of fire and uh, tongues of fire and and uh, mighty rushing wind and and enabling us to work. and so now, on Pentecost, finally, we have communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is why the Sunday after Pentecost, we dedicated ourselves to acknowledging and celebrating that revelation. And so now, where are we? Well, Christ has risen and ascended, the Holy Spirit has descended, and now we do what? Well, We now entirely focus on being the church. Not that we weren't before, but our temporal calendar is now really focused on that. You see how our church year sort of follows the pattern of Christ's life. But it's his earthly life for only roughly half the year. It's his married life, so to speak. His life joined with his bride, the church, that we have now entered See, this is a concept known as, in Latin, totus Christus, which means the whole Christ. And it refers not only to Christ the head, but also to Christ as the body, which is us. Because Christ joined himself to us as church, he is now incomplete without us. What an incredible, unfathomable mystery that is. God, who is perfect and lacking nothing, emptied himself to be incomplete without us. So in this new season where the church has been equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the revelation of the Holy Trinity, and with the explicit command to go into all the world and to proclaim the good news to all creation, this is still following the life of Christ, but now it's Christ's life in us, which is a miraculous inversion of what we normally consider our life in Christ. This part of the church here is Christ's life in us, his body. But in order to really launch off into this great task of uh, enacting Christ's life through our own lives, this great task that we've been given, we need to be grounded, I think, in some shining reality, some beacon to look towards, some paradigm in which to govern ourselves as we move into this new season of the church. Because from Advent through Epiphany Tide, it was Christmas that sort of the Uh, the celebration of the Incarnation, that was our fulcrum. That's what grounded us during that season, Advent all the way through Epiphany. And then from Lent all the way through Pentecost, the central governing beacon was Easter, the resurrection of Christ, which was our fulcrum and central reality. So now during this time after Trinity, I think maybe we are supplied with that central governing paradigm today. Uh, It's not an event, like Christmas or Easter, but instead it's an idea, a reality, really. Much stronger than idea. Uh, It's even more than just a doctrine, I think, Uh, though no ecumenical council has declared it to my knowledge, maybe that's because there was no need. It's essentially a dogma, declared twice this morning already in the epistle reading. You ready for it? Have I built up the tension adequately? Okay, I think this is it. God is love. In that one passage from St. John that uh, Deacon Benjamin read, I quickly counted something like 29 instances of the word love in some form. And the declaration, God is love, is repeated twice, just in that passage alone. Why do I think that this could serve as the central shining and guiding principle for the rest of the year? because I think this is the guiding principle for the entire story of creation and redemption. I think it is the central governing paradigm for this. The Bible is a big story. It has a lot of twists and turns, a lot of confusing smaller stories within it. Sometimes people can even mistake and misinterpret things that God says and does throughout the Old Testament, and even things that Jesus says in the Gospels as potentially uncaring or harsh or unloving. We don't always know how to reconcile the justice and the mercy of God. We don't always understand the language about his wrath. Why is there suffering in the world? How long wilt thou forget me, O God? Forever? As our introit says. There's a lot of this kind of thing throughout the Bible that we have to deal with. But the answer to all of these questions is God is love. It's the thing to hold on to when nothing else makes sense. If the pain and the anguish and confusion and evil surrounding us and God isn't taking it away, we remember God is love. And we see Christ suffering right there alongside us. If pain is there, God is yet love. We see Christ suffering pain in his passion. If evil seems to be prevailing, Christ endures the beating and the spitting and the nailing and the mocking, and he forgives because they know not what they do. God is yet love. In this season, when Sunday by Sunday we read our gospel passages of the Acts and the works and the teachings of Christ and we apply them to our lives in order to imitate Christ to our neighbors... It's the love of God that is the reason for all of that. That's why God is love is the fulcrum and paradigm and theme of this new season. And speaking of gospel passages, what's today's about? We see the story of Lazarus and the rich man, um, even though introduced as a parable, some church fathers say this is possibly even more than a parable. This might be a story. It's a little. Inc- this is different than most of his parables. Lazarus and the rich man um, exactly applying the lesson that I'm talking about today. Because God's love isn't called into question in this story. It's the rich man's love that's called into question. The rich man, who isn't named in this story, by the way, it's just Lazarus, the rich man isn't named because he hasn't risen to the dignity of having a name. He fails the test that St. John gives us in the epistle reading today. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should love his brother also. The simple reality that we see in this story, uh, as Abraham says to the rich man, Lazarus had his evil things in life and he is comforted here. Well, you had your rich things in life, and now you are in torment. It's not as complicated, honestly, as some would make it out to be. There's a balance that's happening after death, but not merely a balance of pain and pleasure. So the rich man had pleasure, now he has pain. Lazarus had pain, now he has pleasure. That's not the balance that's being worked out here. It's a balancing of values and of the condition of our hearts. See, the gulf fixed between Abraham and Lazarus on one side and the rich man now on the other is a metaphysical reflection of the gulf fixed in the rich man's heart. Because even there, Lazarus, whom he clearly knew but never helped, he knows his name, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. But he's, he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus to cool his tongue with a drop of water like Lazarus is an errand boy. Well, Abraham condescends kindly to him, showing he there on that side of paradise is still uh, having compassion for this man. He says, that's, that's not really how it works. He, he can't do that. But then the rich man says, okay, well, send Lazarus to, to you know, talk to my brothers. So, you know, the, we see the conditions of hearts here. Abraham, whose heart is in the condition of compassion, referring to the rich man as my son and and trying to explain to him what's going on. But we also see the condition of the heart of the rich man still fixed with a gulf empty and devoid of love. But is that gulf, that chasm in the heart of the rich man fixed forever and ever? Is there amendment possible? We're not told, but we do see a care for his brothers springing up, which is encouraging, I guess. We do see that at least Abraham thinks he's capable of learning something, which is why he's uh, explaining things to him, and learning is changing, and changing can mean amendment. And if the gulf in his heart does shrink, does that mean that that metaphysical gulf fixed between them shrinks also? The story ends and we don't hear. We're left to consider his torment, and that's not a bad thing honestly, because in saying that God is love, what we mean is God is what we need. And we all need amendment. We need to consider the consequences of our actions, the punishments that we would rightly deserve for doing wrong. As we heard from Jesus in the revelation during the office, those whom I love, I chastise, I correct, I punish for their sake. And we should rightly have fear of that kind of punishment if we're not loving perfectly. St. John says as much in the epistle reading today. For fear has to do with punishment. But he who fears is not perfected in love. Were the rich man perfected in love, he would have nothing to fear because fear has to do with punishment. But listen to what St. John also says. In this, love is perfected that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. What he's saying is, as Christ is, so is his body in this world. Christ is perfected in love, so ought his body to be. And the church, mysteric- mysteriously, mystically, is perfected in love, but are all of her members? Are we each individually? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If we are afraid, potentially rightly, that we are in the position of the rich man and not of Lazarus, the reason is supplied to us from St. John in his epistle. It's because we're not perfected in love. But perfect love casts out fear because it means we have no reprovement, no punishment, no chastisement to fear. How are we then perfected in love? Well, that's, that's our entire project as Christians, to learn that. Sorry, I'm not going to give the simple answer. There's not a magic formula to be perfected in love. It's, it's work. It's taking up your cross and carrying it and working out your salvation in fear and trembling until that salvation is worked out, in which case you've perfected love. There isn't an easy, simple answer, but there is a goal. And that's why we're here, working toward it. And we taste it. We foretaste that goal. We taste what perfect love tastes like in the Eucharist. It tastes like bread and wine. It tastes like the transmuted body and blood of Christ entering into us and perfecting our hearts. We have to cooperate with that. And that's our life as Christians. So, letting St. John's words ring out in our ears as we conclude. In this is perfect, in this is love perfected in us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.